When we cross the threshold of our fiftieth year, we see ourselves as base and spineless, I thought. The question is how long we can stand this condition. Lots of people kill themselves in their fifty-first year, I thought. Lots in their fifty-second, but more in their fifty-first. It doesn't matter whether they kill themselves in their fifty-first year or whether they die, as people say, a natural death. It doesn't matter whether they die like Glenn or whether they die like Wertenheimer. The reason is that they're often ashamed of having reached the limit that a 50-year-old crosses when he puts his 50th year behind him. For 50 years are absolutely enough, I thought. We become contemptible when we go past 50 and are still living, continue our existence. We're border-crossing weaklings, I thought, who have made ourselves twice as pitiful by putting 50 years behind us. Now I'm the shameless one, I thought. I envied the dead. For a moment I hated them for their superiority. I considered it a lapse of judgment on my part to have travelled to Treish out of simple curiosity, the cheapest of all motives, while standing in the inn, disgusted by the inn, I disgusted myself most of all. And who knows, I thought, whether someone in the hunting lodge will even let me in. Without a doubt, the new owners are already there, as I know, for Wertheimer always described his relatives to me in such a way that I had to assume they hated me as much as they did him, and that they considered me now, probably rightly, as the most ill-mannered of busybodies, I thought. A section there from Thomas Bernhard's 1983 novel, The Loser. Uh, it was originally published in 1983 in German, uh, Der Untergeher, and then translated first um, in 1991. Uh, this is a translation by Jack Dawson with an afterword by Leanne Shepton, uh, published by Faber and Faber. Um, so I originally said after I read Frost by Bernhard that I would pr follow him chronologically, um, and I didn't do that. Um, because so many people would seem to be talking about The Loser and I guess I just wanted to get a feel for it. Um, and I've already moved on to Woodcutters. Um, Bernhard is, is rhythmically just incredible. Um, and he, he is somewhat addictive, though it doesn't, I can't really put my finger on as to whether it's the the pessimism, the his his ability as a writer, um, or something else. Hopefully, I'll perhaps be able to find that in the in in talking about the loser. Anyway, as I said, the loser or Der Untergeher, published in nineteen eighty three, um, is a very simple book in a way, and strangely, I would describe it simply as repetitive obsessively repetitive and you wouldn't think to describe the style and the technicalities of it that it would work at all and it takes someone such as Bernhard to be able to make this work um, especially rhythmically and um, that interlocks with the plot in such a way that you are caught up in the obsessions of the sort of three main characters so the plot which there isn't really much of in a way. It's like a single strand which is constantly recursive and doubling back to try 
clarify something or make sure that it's been spoken about correctly in this extremely OCD manner, um, which borders on paranoia and suspicion and then hatred of being itself in terms of being given the lot in life that um, the people have. So the plot is is simple. Uh, In 1953, an unnamed narrator um, and his sort of friend and colleague, Wertheimer, who is nicknamed the loser, uh, uh, we understand though this is always recursive, like you're always building upon the information given by the rhythm and the thread which is given to you as constantly sort of being changed and then altered in the sense of being understood in relation to its own obsession. We are understood that the unnamed narrator and this this chap, Wertenheimer, are both very, very talented and advanced students of piano. Um, And they met at the uh, Mozartium in Salzburg, where they intended to study with um, Horowitz. And one day, they are standing outside a practice room, and they they hear Glenn Gould um, playing the Goldberg variations. Um, And both the narrator, Wertenheimer, and Gould all become friends and bond via their, I guess, abilities and talents and natural love of the piano. But... The narrator and Wertenheimer basically both understand perfection when they hear it. They are completely bowled over by Gould's natural ability as a virtuoso, as, you know, something which is sort of beyond any technical means and can't really be, won't really be able to be um, ascended to by their own ability this is something else this is quite literally artistic perfection um and they they both know perfection when they hear it and this for for both of them there's a different sort of acceleration as to the acceptance of this fact but they both eventually accept the fact that um they've met perfection and in terms of their own talents and abilities to become what also Gould is um their ambition to play the piano in any serious sense begins to die because they basically both internalize and understand that they will never amount and never become that good and that, that they, they will they will not uh, ever be able to amount to that that perfection regarding playing the piano. Um, and even before the monologue that is The Loser begins, and I'll get to how it's written in the style soon, we we learned that Wertenheimer, because of this this meeting with Gould, uh, eventually does well does kill himself. He's committed suicide, and we really begin from the end that Gould dies this natural death. Uh, I believe he dies at the piano from some sort of hemorrhage. Um, Wertenheimer kills himself because he can never amount to what Gould is, and the unnamed narrator undertakes study of says he is as he moves away from the piano and he sells his piano to some school child or gives away his piano, which is a very expensive Steinway, which is almost like this strange third part of the book, which constantly is recurring. He, instead of playing the piano, says, oh, I'm going to tackle the big questions in life. Now, as in philosophy, but he doesn't really know what the big questions are and he never really gets round to telling us what he even means by that. And in terms of what he means by that, in a sense, is the loser itself. Um because he just gets caught up in his own obsession with Gould. And the big questions for him is, what what happened? 
and why is it so tragic basically so the 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 book the entire plot is the friendship between these three men between the narrator Wertheimer and Gould and basically how the narrator is not like Wertheimer in the sense that he didn't kill himself um and Wertheimer being nicknamed the loser and Gould's absolute sort of ability as complete artistic perfection in terms of his own obsession and um the the afterword of the book which i agree with in part by Leanne Chapton um to state that she, i mean she reads this as a as a love story in terms of um there isn't really almost four sentences go by where we don't hear about what we don't don't see or read the name glenn or gould or glenn gould and so there there is this almost strange um nostalgic reminiscence of like a teenager's diary with their first high school crush in the sense that everything has to keep uh, returning to Glenn Gould as some sort of idol and being fed through him uh, in terms of how to understand any of this. Now, the the text itself is written um, as a, a single monologue. So it uh, this edition is 169 pages. And it's a single paragraph straight through, one single monologue, um, often filled with complete repetition, sort of recursive repetition. Keep we go, we go over the same things over and over and over again, which sounds like it just wouldn't work, but it absolutely does because each time you you're, you're given a new piece of information, which is usually given to you not in the sense of actual data, as in the sense of some new piece of data about what happened, but the rereading in the sense of the repetition, the the new understanding is given by the narrator's uh, continual emotional progression in terms of understanding how it happened and understanding Gould and um, Wertheimer. So the the events really are meeting Gould. Wertheimer's suicide and his his sort of um, slow move away from the piano. Uh, both Wertheimer, Wertheimer says he's going to study the natural sciences, and the unnamed narrator says, "Well, you know what? I'm going to go study the big questions." Neither of them ever get anywhere close to really clarifying what in the world they they mean by either of these things. And in fact, it it really does simply feel like what has happened is akin to. Well, I'll get to that next, but I just want to state that so the, the main events are meeting Gould, Wertheimer being nicknamed the loser. Both of these people, Wertheimer and the unnamed narrator, moving off in their respective directions. Uh, Wertheimer with the natural sciences and the unnamed narrator with philosophy. And then there's also this um, giving away, completely just giving away the Steinway piano. Now, it doesn't seem like it would be a big event, but the unnamed narrator giving away his Steinway to what is um, a practicing school child, who I think is about nine, and he says they're not very talented, they're not going to appreciate this. Um, and he, he constantly keeps referring back to the act of giving away the Steinway as almost an act of um, being a positive philistine like he's acknowledged that this is just ridiculous and it's a, a almost a sacrificial absurdity in terms of giving the steinway away to uh, a child and a school teacher who he considers really to be cretins in the sense that they have no talent now going back to Wertheimer and the unnamed narrator's respective paths there is a sense of almost 
tragic, glitched out determinism, or fatalism, I should say, um, in the sense of I think of the film, the assassination, the assassination of Red, uh, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, um, in the sense that the plot of the assassination of Jesse James is that right at the beginning of the film we see Jesse James attempting to rob a train and he well succeeding to rob a train and there's a there's a small moment where he almost gets shot but someone else gets killed if my memory serves me correctly and in the sense that he isn't killed in this final train robbery robbery of Jesse James is he is drawn out of the what we could call the essence of his own fatalism that is how jesse james should have died right you should read about jesse james he should have died in some gunfight on a train in his early 30s because that is that's jesse james right he died sort of being like being jesse james in his essence and the film interestingly follows then what happens after someone hasn't died so you're you're left with this person Jesse James in this film which I'll try and relate back to why why this is for me a good example of what's going on in the loser you're left following a character who's meandering around the world in a world which should have been bereft of them but isn't and so they don't fit there's no longer any of these events which really you know are like James-esque events there's no longer any essence in the world which will carry forward Jesse James in the sense of who he is in in terms of that that title and really he's 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 um yeah he's bereft of a timeline which will make any sense in terms of his own essence and so we see a character who is removed from any environment or narration or plot which allows them to be anything at all what we see with 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 Wertheimer and the unnamed narrator is even though they're not sort of um figures in the sense of Jesse James they were certainly on a, a track to become virtuosos that the, the, absolutely everything in an unquestioned sense was to do with becoming these these extremely talented um concert piano players and the meeting with Gould in a way brings something in from the future which just completely severs their inherent understanding of the future they were meant to have and the absolute perfection of Gould is now always in the future and there's there's, there's no point in doing anything else because why why bother and then of course what what comes of this really for the unnamed narrator is an obsession in one direction of trying to understand Gould and trying to be in a way close to him and Gould is Gould is within the novel and of course was within real life a very strange strange man most most definitely um very autistic and is fair it's fairly aloof i mean he he nicknames wertenheimer the loser which is the title of the novel i mean that's his real appreciation of these two people it's not so much that he hates them but it's that his obsession and love for the piano is so above them that it's you as a reader is uh, unsure as to whether or not um the unnamed narrator can really see past his own obsession with gould um as a player but the, the problem of this really is of course is that Gould himself and I think to a certain extent from my understanding of Gould in reality is almost inhuman in the sense that his entire life was simply 
playing the piano. He did it every single day. It was the it was his complete purpose. As almost as almost as if the purpose and the human were folded into one. And so this sense of trying to understand the figure or the man of Gould, um, the the narrator is constantly struggling to to figure that out in any real sense. But I'll read you um, another excerpt. That on the one hand, he overestimated. On the other hand, underestimated his possibilities, I thought. That he kept asking me for more than he gave me, I thought. That his demands on me, as on others, were always too high, and that these demands of his could never be met. And as a result, he had to become unhappy, I thought. Wertheimer was born an unhappy person. He knew that. But like all unhappy people, he didn't want to admit that he had to be unhappy, as he believed, but others didn't. That depressed him, kept him locked up in his despair. Glenn is a happy person. I'm an unhappy one, he often said. To which I responded that one couldn't say Glenn was a happy person, whereas he, Wertheimer, actually was an unhappy person. It's always correct to say that this or that person is an unhappy person, I said to Wertheimer, I thought, whereas it's never correct to say that this or that person is a happy one. But from Wertheimer's perspective, Glenn Gould was and always a happy person, as I was. As I know, because he told me so often enough, I thought, reproached me for being happy or at least happier than he was. For most of the time, he judged himself the unhappiest person on earth. That Wertheimer also did everything to be unhappy, to be that unhappy person he was always talking about, I thought. For without a doubt, his parents had tried to make their son happy again and again. But Wertheimer had always rejected them, as he also always rejected his sister when she tried to make him happy. Like anybody else, Wertheimer couldn't be an unhappy person every second, one who, as he thought, is completely possessed by his unhappiness. I remember that he was happy during our Horowitz course, took walks with me and with Glenn that made him happy, that he also managed to transform his solitude in Leopoldskron into a happy condition, as my observations show, I thought, but actually that was all over when he first heard Glenn play the Goldberg variations, which at that time Wertheimer, as I know, never dared to play. So the whole thing is is these people's lives, the narrator Wertheimer, they it's almost as if looking back they didn't realise that the decisions that were to be made for them in relation to emotions, in relation to their futures, in relation to purpose, meaning, everything which keeps one going in any direction are completely contingent on this single moment of hearing Glenn Gould play the Goldberg variations, which for those who don't know is sort of, uh, well, at least as I understand it, you can find recordings and videos of him playing it, is is, is the thing he loved to play the most and, and is understood as, uh, you know, his sort of major work, though though I'm fairly ignorant regarding that stuff. Um, so, but but the point being is that this event is hearing someone they consider to be the most talented piano player of all time, and definitely of the, the 20th century, play their sort of masterwork. And so you're hearing the best of the best, basically. You're hearing something which is so beyond anything you'll ever be able to achieve that in a single moment, not only is your purpose regarding the singular vocation of piano unraveled, but in that, 
every single other thing in terms of your own life is is unraveled and what's left for the unnamed narrator and and Wertheimer, almost like less so because we we only understand about Wertheimer from the unnamed narrator what's left is simply to obsess about that singular event because nothing else would mean anything so it's just a continuous attempt in this singular monologue which does not stop and constantly recurs back upon itself with this strange rhythm and this strange re-emphasis of certain events to to attempt simply to work out what in the world happened. And it's a novel of obsession. It's a novel of novel of uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder, really. It's um, suspicion, paranoia. There is love, but all these things are intermingled into one another. And the sense that either of these characters can ever love Gould in his talent is always going to be uh, tainted with a certain element of not necessarily jealousy, because one of the oddities is that this could easily fall into a sort of bitter, jealous novel where they almost want to enact retribution and almost bring Gould down. But the foundation of the whole discussion is such a pure and human external love and appreciation of music that they they're they're never jealous of Gould and they never hate him uh they never there's never any uh hostility or vindictiveness there is only this sense of obsession and of having to go do something else because in the sense that you begin from the love of the piano this is the absolute perfection of piano and of piano playing and of, of any rendition of uh, especially Bach. And so the love of the piano which binds them ends up in this love of Gould, which can't be jealous of because he is, he is bringing about the best of piano playing. But it leaves them with a completely dampened energy which has to go somewhere. And for Wertheimer, it ultimately ends in suicide because after Glenn's death, I think for him... With Glenn no longer being in the world, that that beauty and that perfection is no longer around. And in why, why bother being in such a world in a in a in that way? He he, could, he commits suicide shortly after Gould's natural death. Um, never once really adhering to anything to do with his studies of the natural sciences, and then for the unnamed narrator purpose of his life is simply to go over and over and over that event again as the big question the question maybe why why did this have to happen um what does it mean to really enter into this sort of tragic existence where really your presupposed essence has been severed you know if it's almost um, a novel of a strange very human free will or determinism in a way in the sense that you were once given this deterministic future and for however many years up until that point, that event where they met Gould, that was just happening. And you sort of knew in the back of your mind it was. But then to have, suddenly have that severed and to know that to continue down that road is actually completely fruitless and pointless by your own estimations of that foundation of the love of music that you begin from. But there is no elsewhere. There never was meant to be a free will. And so any elsewhere, anything you do from that point on, 
seems absolutely fruitless and uh, pointless. And so the only thing to really do is just to keep looking back at that event and seeing what, what I did, what happened, who was I before and who was I after. Um, we're not asked to choose our place of birth, I thought. But we can leave our place of birth if it threatens to suffocate us, go off and away from the place that will kill us if we miss the moment of going off and away. I was lucky and left at the right moment, I said to myself. And in the end, left Vienna because Vienna was threatening to suffocate and choke me. Nevertheless, I owe it to my father's bank account that I'm still alive, still am allowed to exist. As I suddenly said to myself, not a life-giving region, I said to myself, not a soothing countryside, not pleasant people, lying in wait for me, I thought, making me anxious, pulling the wool over my eyes. I've never felt safe in this region, I thought, constantly visited by disease, almost killed finally by insomnia. Sigh of relief when the men from Altmünster came and took away the Steinway, I thought, sudden freedom of movement in Desseldorn. Didn't give up art and whatever else the term means by giving the Steinway to the school teacher's child in Altmünster, I thought. To have exposed the Steinway to a schoolteacher's vulgarity, exposed it to the cretinism of the schoolteacher's child. If I'd told the schoolteacher what my Steinway was truly worth, he would have been shocked, I thought. This way he had no idea of the instrument's value. Even when I had the Steinway transported from Vienna to Desselbrunn, I knew it wouldn't be in Desselbrunn for long, but naturally I had no idea I would give it away to the schoolteacher's child, I thought. As long as I had the Steinway... I wasn't independent in my writing, I thought. I wasn't free, as I was from the moment the Steinway was out of the house for good. I had to part with the Steinway in order to write, to be honest. I had been write writing for 14 years and actually had only written more or less useless junk because I hadn't parted with my Steinway. The Steinway was barely out the door and I was writing better, I thought. And so this moment of giving away the Steinway, I mean, it's the, tr the tragedy of giving away the Steinway not only is the admittance of having to hand over all the talents of the trio, in a sense, to people, to, to, to cretin, to a cretinous child who has no ability. But it's a complete, continual self-acknowledgement that this isn't actually going to change that much. So sure, he that which he was writing before giving away the Steinway was useless junk and supposedly giving it away. He seems to have this pretense that he's uh, had a severance from... The whole event but of course he hasn't because we're currently reading him and reading his completely um, obsessive mind uh, refer to itself in the in an attempt to find security in everything it does I thought I said to myself I, I think I thought or something like this you know a constant self-reference back to the fact you're even thinking to try um, anchor oneself in that world which has since been severed from any root of meaning or purpose and you know this this idea of giving up the Steinway is almost like the last remnant of the deterministic road that was laid for them and giving it up seems to enact a sort of ritualistic severance but it doesn't because what what, what happens the unnamed narrator just enters into the monologue of the loser which is sort of completely recursive and unending and for me, the real sadness of The Loser um, is that it doesn't really end. It was just Wertheimer, what the, the ending is already imminent from the start. 
We already know that Worth Glenn Gould dies. Of course he does. He dies a natural death. We already know that Wertenheimer killed himself because of this. In fact, we have all that we know. We need to know about the the bare facts of this event from the start. That there was this trio, and two of them felt from the moment of meeting Gould that it was purpose to get purposeless to carry on the thing which they loved the most. It was purposeless to carry on the thing which was their purpose in life since meeting someone whose ability was completely beyond and transcended purpose to perfection. We know that within the first few pages. So what are we reading? Why are we reading it? We're reading what happens when someone attempts to construct any form or meaning within a world which they have since long since admitted cannot afford them any. Perhaps it's tragic. I mean, Wertenheimer's death is tragic, but it's a foregone conclusion. You already know. You you know from the start it's going to happen. Gould, of course, dies, and the narrator is stuck in his cyclic recursion of all these events, and that's just how the book really heads forward. Um, but but. It's given to us in a singular monologue without a single paragraph break. And in this manner, I don't think it's too cheap to say that it's reflective of a certain type of rhythm, of cyclic rhythm, because it just... Anyone with any any distinctly less ability to write well, you know, I've phrased that very badly. Basically, anyone with less ability, this just would not work. This would fall completely flat and you'd be so bored. Because if you were to say to someone really technically how, how this purposeless recursive novel moves forward, if the whole thing is revolving around the event A and you're given all the data you need to understand event A within the first few pages, you say, well, how can it carry forward? And it carries forward via an obsession and via a rhythm of obsession, which keeps just, is unable to let things go. And the sort of five, four or five main events of the novel just keep returning with a different rhythm, with a different pace, with a different weight. And that is what carries you along. And it's Bernhard's technical ability which is incredible. It, it couldn't work without without his ability here. Um, that that carries you along. But it is funny. I have to emphasise that it's very funny. It's very witty. It um, it moves at sometimes at a drastic pace, sometimes at a quite a slow pace. It has a beautiful rhythm, as I've emphasised many times. Um, it's a novel about obsession, about perfection about purpose and it's about it is also about love and it Bernhard so far really is someone that one should be reading in uh, early spring or winter certainly not summer not not so far he's definitely not a summer um, novelist I would read this if you have a minor headache. I think you need a bit of background misery to really appreciate it. I was suffering a migraine when I was reading 
some of this and it really added to the experience because certain you i don't know hit yourself in the shin with a steel bar or something to give yourself some ambient pain just to continue through in a way what what the characters have well the the narrator and worth and i'm having to deal with this is sort of monotonous drone in the back of their lives that well i just have to deal with this now but it really is beautiful it's a, it's a fantastic fantastic book and I, i'm sort of just obsessed with bernhard now um but anyway yeah that's my uh review and analysis of the loser by uh thomas bernhard i hope you enjoyed it